Welcome to season four, episode 31 of Brackets, Bubbles, and Bid Stealers. I am Sam Fetterman. Jonathan Litskin is not with me today. He is feeling a little sick. He started coughing at the very end of our show last night, and he is unavailable today. He's on the LJ Cryer timeline. He's day-to-day. But Rocco Miller is here with us. This was planned before Jonathan had to go on the injured list. And Rocco, how are you doing tonight? Doing great, Sam. Good to be back on with you. How have you been? I've been pretty good. I feel like we've had some really good college basketball over the last few days, and we have some really good college basketball coming up, and you've seen a lot of college basketball because, I mean, who knows who's funding all this? <laughs> you're, you're on the government's payroll or something with how much you, you fly around. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, I'm, I'm able to – you know, go out and um, do different like business dealings during the day. And that allows me to be in certain parts of the country throughout the year. And these five months are the best five months of the year, bar none, despite the crazy travel conditions. Some of these uh, weeks, like last week, I was in Connecticut and Virginia um, and a little bit of Massachusetts, had that storm Monday night, got stuck uh, trying to get home from, uh, well, I was actually staying in Springfield, Massachusetts, trying to get back there from Yale had uh, some some uh, technical difficulties, literally, uh, for the first time ever, I made the mistake of renting an electric car, had no idea how to find charger charging stations, how to charge the car. Long story short, it took about four hours to get the thing charged. I made it back to Springfield at like 2 a.m. Um, but fortunately, I'm on a West Coast body clock at all times, so it felt like 11 o'clock to me. Um, it was just a very bitter, cold and, uh, night and learning experience. Um, but yeah, overall, like I, I certainly consider, consider myself pretty lucky. And, you know, I, I take the opportunity to want to see as many of these leagues, all 32 would be the goal every year. It's pretty much unrealistic, but I do think, um, seeing teams live is way different than just sitting on the couch all day and flipping around channels. So it's awesome. And building the relationships with the staffs and the players is really uh, fruitful as well, in my opinion. Yeah, um, as you said, you, you've been everywhere, but we do have to start with some of the bigger games from today. Michigan State and Maryland. Michigan State kind of controlled the pace of this game for the first 20. Then the second 20, Maryland kind of started to come back. But at the end of the at the end of the day, Michigan State was just too much, and Maryland just couldn't draw up the right play down the stretch. Right. Yeah. I I missed the majority of it. I was tracking it pretty close, Sam. I think, you know, Michigan State's a team really still with a lot to prove in order to be an at-large caliber uh, team. Uh, In last week's projection, I had them uh, on the outside looking in. And, you know, of course, they've taken seven losses. They've had a few great wins like the Baylor win. Even the Indiana State win is is terrific. But uh, getting wins away from home is what is going to get any team into the at-large picture. And so even though Maryland's not a, uh, maybe a tournament level team this year, that's a, that's an important win for the Michigan state resume. Gets them to 12 and seven overall uh, adds a road win that they really needed and and they can start to build off of uh, wins like these. So they need to find a way to get it and they got it. Yeah. I mean, MSU now they started the season four and five. They've now won eight of their last 10 games. They are four and four in the big 10 after that. Oh, and two start. They have a big, big opportunity coming up on Friday night against Wisconsin. We don't exactly know who's going to be joining us on Friday night, but we will have plenty of discussion of that game as we break that down and then go into 
the big Saturday slate coming up on the 27th, but they have the chance Michigan state does to really make a statement at the Cole center on Friday. And as for Maryland, they were kind of crawling their way back um, towards relevance after that win in Champaign, but the loss to Northwestern kind of stopped the momentum. And this is still a team that has just really, really struggled to put the ball in the basket all season long. And it, it struck them again today. Yeah, I think you look at the the shooting numbers from Maryland. Uh, today wasn't terrible per se. You know, from three, they were eight for 22. Overall, they shot 21 for 50. That's that's a little less than where you want to be at the end of a game. Um, they dominated the glass. Michigan State's actually a really poor rebounding team. Michigan State only had two offensive rebounds all game. They're somewhere around 150th in the country in offensive rebounding, which is kind of strange for a Michigan State program. 11th in the Big Ten. Yeah, and but Maryland, you know, so they had those advantages. Um, but like you said, you know, without maybe like another third or fourth sec, um, option after Young and Scott, you know, Reese put up 10, but um, there's just not a whole lot of guys that can score or even look to score within this offense. Geronimo went 0 for tonight, uh, and, you know, they didn't get anything really out of the bench besides Long getting nine. So, yeah, I, I think Kevin Willard, you know, obviously a, a solid coach, but a um, lot of work to do and and now starting to run out of real estate with eight losses. Yeah. Um, I, this is kind of a tough topic to talk about with just a guest instead of with the host and the co-host, but we do have to talk about it. We've kind of danced around it since the news came out, but we have to talk about it now. Terrence Shannon Jr. is back on the floor for the Illinois Fighting Illini. He played today. He scored 16 points in 27 minutes off the bench. The off-the-bench distinction was just that. It was just a distinction. He played starter minutes, and he played well because he's one of the best players in college basketball. Even with a month that he hasn't played a game, he's been he, he's really, really good. Um, but sh- the question of should he be playing college basketball, I don't want to present to you that question. Like, if you have a strong opinion on this, I would be um, – I'd be let – I'd let you – I'd let you offer that. Appreciate the opportunity, Sam. Yeah, I think in these cases it's tricky because, um, uh, you know, I think best practice is wait and see approach. Uh, Obviously, if the allegations are true, it's very serious and he has no business playing at at all. I think all of us would agree on that. But at the same time, there there are some cases where, um, you know, we're we're, we're dealing with 18 to 22 year old kids and you you have no idea what the situation is. And the, and this isn't the only one that's out there. There's several of them across all college sports. Um, you know, I'm a Washington guy. Originally, we had a one of our running backs in a very similar case as uh, as Shannon, and and uh, basically didn't see him the last three games of the regular season. Then all of a sudden, in the college football playoff, he's playing. Um, nobody even really talked about it because uh, it, he's not as big of a celebrity as Terrence Shannon is. But uh, I think in all these cases, it's it's wait and see. Sometimes you see the charges dropped, and then you hate to see the the player's name get shamed and hurt his career and deny him the opportunity to play. Obviously, if it goes the other way and he is uh, an accused, you know, sexual assault, uh, you know, person that, that engaged, yeah, arbitrate perpetrator and engaged in that activity, he doesn't uh, belong to play at all. So it's really touchy because all these situations have similarities, but they aren't the same. So 
Um, my, my opinion is not a strong one. It's just a wait and see until all the facts come out. Uh, whatever happened in the Illinois case, I know there was a judge involved. There was enough there, I guess, to let him play for the time being. So that's what we're going to deal with. In general, basketball-wise, Illinois went 4-2 and two without him. They weren't horrible. They beat Michigan State. They beat Northwestern without him. They clobbered Northwestern without him. So oh, yeah. they, that, that was and, 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 that, yeah, and they really started to wake up. And then they kill, they kind of killed Michigan, and he comes back today, and they kill Rutgers. They are maybe not quite as good as Purdue, but they are right behind them as number two in the, in the Big Ten. Yeah, they went they went to Purdue without him and only lost by five. A very competitive effort, and I think a lot of times in all levels of college basketball, especially this this high major level, uh, when you lose a superstar like Shannon, there's still really good players behind him, and there's all these different combinations. A great coach like Brad Underwood can put together. And sometimes that net result can either be equal to what you had before. Every once in a while, it can actually be better, uh, just depending on what that chemistry looks like and um, how you're matching up with your opponent. Big Ten, you have so many different teams you play, so certain matchups they might have been okay without them. So it's really, you know, sometimes I don't think it's as uh, big of a deal as it as it's always going to sound because he's always going to be in the headlines. Um, but at the same time. Uh, you, you know, it, 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 I'm sure everybody's happy that he's back from a basketball standpoint. Yeah, and it's a really, as you mentioned, a really difficult situation to discuss because, like, if the like if the charges do eventually get dropped within, this is still a process that's going to take months, maybe years. And if at some point the charges do get dropped and you rob Terrence Shannon of his final opportunity to play college basketball that sucks but it would suck even more if terrence shannon turned out to be guilty of these actions and you let him play college basketball through that i don't really i don't know the whole situation i don't think anyone knows the whole situation but again just the wait and see approach is is the way to go but not everyone's right. going to be on board with that yeah, my, my last thought on that overall is if this was 20 years ago, there's no way he'd be playing because there wasn't the kind of money that's involved in college sports as there is to, uh, 20 years later here today. So yeah, I mean, you, the, the environment I, I grew up in is much different than today. It, it shows that the risk-reward level to allow him to play as long as there's not 100% evidence that he did what the, he's being accused of is, the, is worth the risk from Illinois' perspective. Uh 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been the case. It would have been a, hey, this is just a college sport. This kid's just on a scholarship. He's just like everybody else. We're going to treat him like any other student. That doesn't exist now because the money is way too big. And uh, everybody, so many people's jobs are on the line. People get fired way faster uh, for lack of performance, especially at a big program like Illinois. And so just the point I'm making is this is today's climate of big-time college sports. And it's um, you know there's some consequences no matter how you look at it. Yeah, um, I'm sure you had your eye on Indiana State today as they took down Murray State. This is one of the most fun teams in the country. I feel bad for talking about the Valley, the two-bid Valley without Jonathan. What are you're, you're big into bracketology. What are your thoughts on the potential of a two-bid Valley? I'm loving it right to, right now as we speak. So I had I had Indiana State cleanly in uh, as an at-large team on Friday. Today just helps embolden that a little bit more. Uh, it's a team that's eight and three in road neutral games now. Four of those true road wins, 
And they're one of only two teams to win at Bradley and one of two teams to win at Northern Iowa. And so although Bradley and Northern Iowa are not tournament caliber teams, uh, those are very tough buildings to win in. And of course, Indiana State steamrolled everybody in their MTE uh, and they, you know, they're undefeated at home and their only three losses are to extremely difficult places to win in, uh, at Michigan State, at Drake and at Alabama. Um, so really no shame there. And we wouldn't be having this debate if they won any of those three. Um, but I do think the, the quality of play on the court is so dynamic. Uh, this team is so deep. They beat you in waves. Obviously running the high post game through a Robbie Avila is such an um, NBA-level uh, style of offense and weapons all over the floor. Jordan Kent's having an unbelievable season, as are several other Sycamores. So, you know, I think it's a team today, if you're looking at a three-loss Indiana State team with those three losses – and, uh, you know, a handful of just really impressive wins that I mentioned, I would take them in a heartbeat over a middle-of-the-pack Big 12, a middle-of-the-pack Big 10. You know, some of those teams they'll be compared against for those last, you know, 10 to 12 spots in the bracket. Now, with all that being said, Indiana State plays in the, in the Valley. You and I both know, and Jonathan knows, how difficult the Valley is. I'm expecting, you know, today was – was a tough game. They, Murray State had a great game plan. They Murray were State all through the kitchen sink at this through the kitchen. Yeah, and they were and they had eight block shots through the first twenty five minutes, and um, that was uncharacteristic. So you could tell Murray State had a great game plan. They executed it for sixty percent of the game, and then that fourteen to two run by Indiana State uh, flipped it. But you know, on one of these nights, or maybe multiple nights, they're gonna get they're gonna get snipped by one of these types of teams, and so then it's gonna be what their resume looks like after that. Um, and of course, you know, we are only going to get one auto bid from this league. Drake is right there as well in terms of a at large resume. Uh, they're, they're obviously the, the league leader today, so they don't have to uh, think about that for the, the forecast purposes. But Drake is a team um, that also, you know, they're them pounding Nevada was a huge statement. Gives them a better win than Indiana State has overall for that one singular. And the event. Indiana State win in itself. And the Indiana State win in itself, exactly. So, And Indiana State's got great um, metrics, obviously top 28 in the net coming into today. So there's uh, there's a lot for Drake to build on as well. And I and I actually, you know, if you run the Torvik numbers in the last month, Bradley's actually playing better than both of them uh, with a healthy Connor Hickman. Uh, different team without him in that five-game losing streak. But now that he's fully healthy, Bradley's humming again. Uh, the, all three of those teams are, are playing at an elite level. Yeah, um, and then it, it's the valley's awesome. Um, and I again feel bad for talking about it without Jonathan because that's his that's his neck of the woods. He gives us the valley updates on every show. Um, but yeah, I, I think you obviously did get to see Bradley, and um, you also saw yes. Belmont, who's really really fun, um, with Cade Tyson and Malik Dia. Yeah. Um, like that is some the, the valley just has some absurd talent this year. There's but the thing about Indiana State, I know that a lot like a buzzword that gets thrown around a lot around March is the eye test. If Indiana State doesn't pass the eye test, there has never been a team in the history of the sport that passed the eye test. <laughs> they might be the most eye test friendly team in the country. It's not they don't just pass the eye test. They get a 105 on the eye test. 
Well, that's what happens when you're, that's what happens when you're second in the country in three point shooting percentage, you're second in the country in two point shooting percentage, and you're number one in the country in effective field goal percentage. I mean, it's a beautiful, uh, well orchestrated offense. And, you know, Jordan Majewski does an incredible job. He lives in the area. I, I covered an Indiana State Drake game last year in Terre Haute and, uh, didn't realize it the whole time, but Majewski lives out there. And, um, so he watches. Uh, yeah, he lives somewhere out there, but he's close. And I know he used to live in Terre Haute. He recommended some restaurants to me. So that was cool. Uh-huh. Uh, shout out to Jordan. He's, an yeah, incredible he's great. Leader. We got to get him on the pod at some point. You should. You definitely should. Um, but he made some great points uh, online today just about, um, you know, Murray State went to take away uh, the, the, the typical flow of their offense. And he can, uh, Josh Schertz can flip that into a whole different attack. They, they have so many different ways that they can attack you. And I think that's what makes this team so intriguing if they can get to March Madness. You know, March Madness is an event built on winning two games a week. And when you have interchangeability, both roster-wise and offensive scheme-wise, you can go win two games and get to the Sweet 16. This team can do that. Yeah, something that – the the tweet that he quoted is like, how does every college basketball coach not watch Indiana State's offense and say, yeah, how are you going to do that? That's the one. It's It's so impressive just how well they space the floor. I saw this um, video of like a layup and then Kevin Sweeney retweeted it. And it was like, lol, look at the spacing. And it was like Isaiah Swope passed the ball to the corner and immediately cut to the basket. And like his head was not even fully past the defender yet. And he had a wide open layup because nobody was going to help off of the 240% three point shooters <laughs> on the weak side. So he just walks in for a layup. Thing of beauty, isn't it? Oh my god, they're so fun. Um, yeah, yeah, they are. And and and, and knock on wood for good health. You know, a team like Jordan Kent had a knee. Or sorry, it wasn't a knee; it ended up being his foot, uh, and he was out for a good ten minutes tonight. But he came back in the last five, looked fine. You never know with those things how they're going to swell up overnight. So let's hope he's out there on Wednesday against UIC. Yeah, um, East Tennessee State. I kind of expected them to be a little bit better than one and five in the SoCon. They lost today to Chattanooga, who's four and two. I don't really think Chattanooga is all that great, but um, they do have that win against um, a Furman team that was not fully healthy at the time. They didn't have Marcus Foster in that game, but Furman fully healthy. You've seen this team play. Um, how, How good do you think Furman is? Well, Furman's been so banged up. I mean, they barely played any games with their full team and they finally started getting healthy here in the last couple of weeks where uh, got them in position to really compete against Western Carolina. Otherwise they probably would have fell. Um, you know, they lost to a non-division one team back on December 30th that caught a lot of eyeballs. Um, and I think, you know, they've weathered the storm. They're extremely well coached like they always are under Bob Ritchie and staff. Um, you know, you look at uh, Marcus Foster's only played nine games, right? JP uh, Peg was act- actually missed a game in there and Ben Vanderwall um, had a weird issue when I covered them at the Myrtle Beach Invitational where he had a a medical event the ambulance came after one of the games and took him away you had Alex Williams missing five games uh, overall he he missed some time when I was uh, covering the team as well so this uh, they've been through a ton already and that actually kind of puts them in a maybe a stronger spot, just all the stuff they've gone through, suffering a six and nine start. 
uh, and now getting back to 10 and nine, four and two in the league. They're right in the hunt to, to capture a SoCon title. They've got two Samford games ahead. The first big one this Wednesday at home. Um, so obviously if they sweep Samford, they're right in the mix. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're where they're kind of back right this minute to where we might've thought they were start of the year, uh, a league title contender, probably somewhere between 80th, 180th and 120th in the nation. And, um, you know, they've got a great group of guys and they have positive attitudes. So um, nothing's really going to get them down at this point. Yeah. And that that's a huge, huge game coming up on Wednesday. We'll lead the show with the iron bowl of basketball, most likely um, as that that's a big game. We'll also discuss yeah. um, Villanova St. John's and there, there's a lot <laughs> of fun. There's a lot of fun basketball that night. But it won't be long before we talk Samford Furman on that night's podcast. I'll probably re- I'll probably reach out to Brian Wilmer. I assume he's going to be at that game. Um, <laughs> I, I would also mention on uh, on East Tennessee State's part. You know they've had a brutal uh, schedule to start SoCon play. Those last five losses are Greensboro, Western, Furman, Wofford, and now Chattanooga. Wofford on the road. Uh, very competitive in almost all of them. The, the first couple were double digits, but um, Brooke Savage is is a great is going to be a great recruiter. Already is, and I think I, I love great. Peterson. Yeah, Peterson, and you know uh, they, they've got a great home court advantage at Freedom Hall. I think by the end of the year they're going to be dangerous. Um, they're just going to keep getting better over time. It's his first year. Nobody's going to throw in the towel at one and five, and now they get a, a VMI game on Wednesday. Uh, ideally, they go up there and take care of business. That'll get them back on track. Yeah, and then they they do have to go. Um, they host Sanford next. And that Saturday. could be a rowdy. That could be a rowdy environment. Um, yeah, I, I've been I've been I've been to Freedom Hall. It's an it's an incredible place. When it's yeah, packed. crowd will get up for that as Buffalo misses the field goal. Wow! So the Chiefs are going to get the ball back with a minute forty three. For anyone listening on the podcast, I. Um, I'm sorry, <laughs> but that was that, that's very nice to see that the Chiefs are probably going to vanquish um, the Devils football team. Um, moving forward from some SoCon talk, I know you've seen a little bit of that. I don't I don't really want to talk about the Mac tonight, but uh, so Tulane defeated Memphis. You've seen Tulane, correct? I have, yes. Yeah, you, you were at the game when they played Bradley. Yeah. Um, yeah, great game. And tonight, another great game. I think the, oh the American God. Conference right now, the best team in the American Conference right now is Southern Methodist University. <laughs> at least performance metrics-wise. SMU still got to prove it on the court against a, a high-quality opponent. Uh, they've had their chances and fallen just short. But in the, in all these other games, they're, t- they're handling their business very well, SMU. And I, a program I know well – I. I went out to one of their preseason practices and um, got to know that those players and um, a lot of guys they brought in in the portal. It's a it's a loaded team, a very athletic team. Uh, Tulane, uh, somewhat similar. I agree, SMU is a a stronger horse for the finish, no pun intended. But uh, Tulane is a squad um, also highly athletic. Lost a lot of heartbreakers this year. They lose at home by one to FAU. They lose by three at home to George Mason. They lose that game. Uh, they easily could have won against Bradley that I was at. Uh, so, you know, they they could have a gaudy record if they if they could finish close games. 
I think today's win will help them a lot confidence-wise. They did have a couple OT wins when they beat Furman in double OT and Tulsa in OT on the road uh, just recently. But uh, today's game was 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 very interesting. Like from the Memphis standpoint, uh, this is two games in one week where they didn't score in the final four and a half minutes. It's almost the exact same thing that happened to them earlier this week with South Florida. Uh, Penny Hardaway had some very shaky quotes after the game talking about um, how the players aren't grasping the offense or in grasping what's being called. That's extremely concerning at this level of the season, especially for a successful team that had an incredible non-conference resume. Um, and so league play starting to get to, to Memphis, even a team that we thought would be right there at the top all year, and maybe they will be later. Um, but this just goes to show how different of an animal conference play is at all levels. Uh, and for Tulane, you know, they needed – like I said, that, this gets them back to three and three in the league. Uh, they have some great individual talent. Getting them to play together has not been as easy as it sounds, but Colby King's an incredible talent. J- Jalen Forbes is terrific. So is Kevin Cross. So, Sion James. Yeah, Sion James. I mean, the the, the mm-hmm. athleticism on Tulane is uh, off the charts, but they, they have a lot to do in terms of playing together defense and uh, a little more continuity on offense is better, but – Right now, the 180th ranked defense, you're not going to get anywhere with that uh, mediocre of a D. Yeah, but like Ron Hunter can really coach. That's absolutely one of my one favorites. Of, just one of America's better coaches, probably in the top 75 of the best coaches in America, if not higher than that. Um, he just wins. He, he won at Georgia State, um, he won at IUPUI. Like, who wins at IUPUI? Um, <laughs> only him. Um, and now he's he's, he's the only one. A, he had a 20 win season at Tulane last year. Who does that? Um, and he's building up for yet another 20 win season potentially this year. Um, they just they need to finish 11 and seven, which yeah, is it's... totally attainable in that league for him. Yeah, one point I was trying to make earlier tonight on Twitter was just that, uh, the American Conference, more so than any other league, went after a, an extremely unbalanced schedule. Whereas the the top seven projected teams, for the most part, you can draw an imaginary line there, uh, are all playing each other twice. And then the bottom seven projected preseason are all playing each other twice. So we have a, a cluster of teams at the top with one loss, I think upwards of six. Uh, but out of those six, only um, South Florida and Charlotte were projected at the bottom, so they have a much easier path going forward. If you looked at the schedule before the season started, Tulane easily had the toughest. Uh, they play Memphis twice. They play FAU twice. They play uh, UAB twice, who they've already lost SMU to. SMU twice. North SMU twice. Yeah. yeah they, to me, Tulane got dealt the br- most brutal hand, uh, but if they can get wins within there, they're going to quickly get a resume. So it's it's pretty fascinating, and, and I always argue – you know, regardless of at-large bid or no at-large bid, playing tough games night in, night out makes your team better. You learn so much about your team playing tough games. So screw your gaudy record that you want for your athletic director. Go out and play tough games because you'll you'll create a better team in March. And Tulane's going to have that opportunity. Yeah, totally agree with that. Um, I, I actually didn't realize that about the schedule, but I look at it and, wow, you're right. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you look like at natural geography – it defies it because, like UTSA, they want probably one of the closest teams to them. They play them once, right? Because they're pred- predicted at the bottom. Yeah, I mean UTSA you, you, plays Temple twice, Charlotte twice. Yeah, we get S- twice. South 
South Florida and Florida Atlantic, the only two teams in Florida play each other once, right? So it's all done based on how how the league. I like got. that. I think that's yeah. good. It is. Maximize it's gonna it's rating. gonna create it's gonna create a lot more travel, but it's um I think worth it. it hey, if you're if you're signing up for the American Conference in 2023-24, you're yep. signing up for that travel. That's right. Um for just from a Memphis perspective though. Yeah, I am a more than a little bit concerned, just given the fact that they've now lost two in a row um, after really squeaking by their first four conference games, aside from Wichita State. Now, SMU is obviously a really impressive win. SMU is higher in Ken Palm than um, SMU is higher in Ken Palm than Memphis and. Right now, they are a better basketball team than Memphis, so that that's a that's a very good win. But I just don't see Memphis and FAU the same way that I saw them a month ago. I just think that as a whole, bad month for those two in terms of furthering their tournament resumes. Because I can't say for certain either of them is a guaranteed tournament team. I think FAU probably gets in and Memphis also probably gets in, but there's a path to the bubble for both of them. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Memphis, first of all, Memphis, you know, they've had just such a strange turn of events roster wise throughout this campaign already with, you know, Jordan Brown leaving. And then they bring in Naquan Tomlin to basically take his place. And Caleb Mills is out for the year. And, you know, so obviously guys like David Jones, Javon Quinterly, Malcolm Dandridge, Jaquan Walton, et cetera, are heavily counted on. Um, but I do think emotionally some of that might, probably has taken its toll. Uh, again, Penny's quotes today were were very kind of head-scratchy. Um, but we're right smack dab in the middle of the dog days of conference play right now. And so, you know, there is some of that where, all right, Memphis gets back to playing Memphis basketball. They could get hot again, no problem. They do have more talent than – almost every other team in the league. So if they can write the ship and just, uh, you know, not going to UAB next Sunday is probably not the best recipe for that. But after that, they'll get home games with Rice and Wichita. That's an opportunity to get right uh, as they cruise into February. As for, yeah. for as for Florida Atlantic, I think some of their syndrome has been a little bit of playing down to their competition. Um, you know, there are two really bad losses. The the Bryant and Gulf Coast losses, they, did, they shot like terribly. But again, that's really concerning because that could happen against anybody on any night. Um, so it's something to be leery of. And then I think uh, obviously this UTSA game and the Wichita game earlier this week, some of some of it is just kind of staying with the level of competition. They have this knack to win close games at the end, like they somehow find find a way to win today, uh, and also the Wichita one. Um, but I also think the injury to Giancarlo Rosado is very is a lot bigger than. Most people realize, I know, Sam, you you and I were with them last March, so I know you know how big that is. I just don't think Trey Carroll and a couple of the other reserves can do what Rosado can do from a from a defensive, from an emotion, and from a rebounding standpoint uh, to give Vlad Golden a blow or even just be a better matchup against a lot of their opponents. So ideally, they can get Rosado back by the end of February, but um, it sounds like he's going to be out for quite a while, and that's a, that's a big concern I have. Yeah. And um, 
without Rosado, they have to rely so much more on Vlad Golden. And I like this team's forward depth more than I liked it last year, but they also don't have as much guard depth. I think with Brennan Lorian, I, I like Trey Carroll as a little, a little bit as well. But Michael Forrest was really important. Nick Boyd has kind of been banged up all year. And I think John L. Davis looks like an All-American compared to last year where he looked and he's, like an All-Conference player. Well, John and John L's had to be. I mean, he's had to put on the cape so many times already. He's supposed yeah. to be saving the cape for – I mean, when he wore the cape against Arizona, that was incredible, and he needed to. But when he's wearing the cape against UTSA and Wichita, I mean, he's supposed to be saving the cape for the big games in March. I mean so, – if he, you, he could run out of gas at some point, which I'm I mean, I'm just I'm just impressed that he's been able to put on the cape as often as he has. I mean, like <laughs> he's, let's, he's let's an go. incredible talent, man. He's a very I mean, incredible he scored talent. 30 points three times this year. Um, UAB game, um, UTSA and the Arizona game where he was one of where, where I think he really opened up his All-American candidacy. Not one, but like he was also awesome against Charleston. He was awesome against Texas A&M in that win. In all of their biggest games, he's been amazing. Yep. And I think he's going to do that all year. And I, I remember I said, um, I think watching them against Butler, I was like, Vlad Golden has been their best player so far this year. Vlad Golden might be like one of the most impactful big men in the country. And I remember he was very high in the Evan uh, Miyakawa metrics last year, but this team goes as John L. Davis goes. And that's mm -hmm. not a good thing considering what they were last year. Yeah, I think, I think it would behoove Dusty and I'm not going to tell Dusty what to do. He's in the, the guy's a genius, but um, you know, just seeing like the Arizona win, even though John L made so many big buckets. It was also the best game of Jalen Gaffney's career. You know, games like that where you can get a Gaffney to step, step up or Greenlee's been really clutch over the last two years when when counted on. Um, Weatherspoon can deliver. Nick Boyd's obviously awesome, but he went through a really tough injury this year. And Elijah Martin's just been a little bit off so far. I think he, he was great he started, today. He was great today. That's a great sign. So, again, I think they're just trying to build it back up to when we get to March to be able to count on all these pieces. The, the thing that made Florida Atlantic so deadly last year was you didn't know which guy was going to snipe you, and it really all five of them could. And, and it's a lot of the same people. So they really just got to get a little bit more balance across those five in some of these games. And um, obviously they got to get better defensively. I mean, that's been a – Huge issue dropping all the way down to the 96 best defense. That's not going to cut it. They got to get that thing closer to top 50. Yeah. And then I, I want to just gloss on to the fact that Utah kept their, um, Utah kind of kept their hopes for an at large at this point in a good spot with the way that they played today, just winning at home against Oregon. They had a big weekend beating Oregon and Oregon State. They're now five and three in the Pac-12. How many bids do you think the Pac-12 is going to get? Yeah, I don't know how it's going to shake out at the end. I, you know, on Friday I had, of course, Arizona, the, the one elite team in the league. Um, I had Utah very safely in uh, on the seven line. They've, you know, they got a nice – that road win they had at St. Mary's just got a little bit better as St. Mary's continues to, to win, and they've now won eight in a row. 
Um, you know, Colorado looked for sure like a tournament team for a while, but then they took the injuries to De Silva, Cody Williams. Now Hammond has been out. Uh, obviously, Colorado played better this week, but uh, I think they still have work to do to get in themselves. And then, you know, Oregon's kind of a, a bubbleish team them, themselves. So I think when it's all said and done, four sounds right. Uh, it's just <clears throat> it's just been kind of, you know, as a, as a Pac-12 person here in the in the footprint, it's been really frustrating because the non-league, it happens all the time with this league, and this is the last go-around. So many missed opportunities in non-conference play across a bunch of these teams. And then all of a sudden they start, like teams like Arizona State start playing much better and Oregon playing much better. And Oregon, of course, having a million injuries uh, uh, coming into league play. And even California, who who I don't think would be a tournament team by any means, they've had like seven heartbreaking losses, including – uh, another another one t- uh, on Thursday against Washington, beating them on a buzzer beater. Um, so there's just a lot of little things like that that can drag down the league, and that's been the issue. Stanford's had some huge wins, but they, you know, they they'll they'll stub their toe more often than they'll get a big win. So it's just been really frustrating from that standpoint. And I think they're probably looking at a four bid league. Yeah, that's actually really interesting because we have we we we've kind of talked about the Pac-12 as a mostly three bid league this year. Yeah. Well, I think right now the only three that have the credentials would be Oregon, Utah, and, and Arizona, of course. Colorado's close. Washington State's close. And then I think the odds of a team outside of the first three I mentioned winning the Pac-12 tournament are a little bit greater than usual. Arizona has a huge home court advantage in the Pac-12 tournament, but Arizona's already been blown out by Stanford, and they've they've looked really shaky. Like They looked very shaky against UCLA yesterday. So it just seems like one of those years where maybe somebody's just, you know, that next set of quality teams, somebody will step up and win three or four games that week in in Vegas. But we'll see. Um, Moving on, the last thing that I wanted – well, two more things I want to discuss. We didn't really get into Duke's upset loss to Pittsburgh last night. Blake Hinson was remarkable. Jalen Lowe was remarkable. And just going on on the road – uh, with with balls of steel, really is is what it felt like for Pitt. Just they had an answer for everything that Duke threw at them. Yeah, very interesting because, of course, the first first place my brain goes is Coach Capel, a Duke uh, former Duke guy, big Duke guy. Of course, his players want to represent him well, uh, assuming they all have close relationship with him. And um, I, you know, I think there's been a thing over the years where. Capel teams go into Duke and give them fits. And here we go again. It's kind of the same formula, different different cast of characters. Uh, and as you said, you know, Blake Hinson was tremendous, uh, putting up 24 points, but seven for seven from three. Are you kidding me? Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and he threw in eight rebounds on top of that. So um, incredible night for Blake. He won't forget it. And, of course, now standing on the scores table, all that, uh, that, that just made it iconic to it to a pit lover, um, but great. Also great performances from uh, Jalen Lowe who had 17 and six assists and so many big shots. Yeah. And look at the, uh, the turnovers. They only turned it over 10 times. It's that's uh, that's a good ratio for, for a game in a hostile environment. So um, of course, shooting 50% from three gives you a chance for a road upset as well. And they out rebounded Duke 32 to 25. So um, overall very surprising. Out of all of college basketball per Ken Palm, 145 college basketball games with D1 versus D1 yesterday. 
this was the biggest upset at only a 12% chance. Um, so definitely not something I expected or even considered, uh, but I do think that capable factor I said at the beginning mattered quite a bit. All right. You want to, you want to answer some trivia, que- a, tri- a trivia question quickly. I'll do my best. All right. Blake Hinson ranks sixth in the country amongst players with 123 point attempts in three point percentage. How many of the five above him can you name? <laughs> you know, I haven't studied it, so I, I'll just I'll just let you name them. Gabe Madsen from Utah. Yeah, excellent shooter. Excellent Chad shooter. Lanier from North Florida. Okay. Quentin Morton Robertson, the 5'8 point guard for Fort Wayne. Um, and Quincy oh, yeah. Oliveri from Xavier. And yep. Javante Hawkins from FIU. Wow. And Madsen, Blake- Madsen's the only one that doesn't shock me. Uh, the other ones, I guess, the North Florida guy, I know he's th- that offense is insane. But for him to make it at that clip is really impressive. And Blake Hinson is th- – this one should be a little easier for you. There are only three players in the country with 143-point attempts that are shooting over 40%. Hinson is one of them. Who are the other two? Huh. Shooting that many threes. Yes. Um, I was, I was thinking, uh, geez, that's a ton of threes. I have to narrow it down to like, who's even shot that money. They're, they're both like really, really notable guys. Like one, only one of them is at a high major, but like the other guys a really notable mid-major. Maybe that's just because of where he plays for me. That, okay. That tell, tell me, tell me who they are. Well, one of them plays in Texas, and the other plays in the Northeast. Gotcha. It's not one of the Vermont guys. No. Um, higher mid major than Vermont. Higher, but it's in. It's at the mid level. Yes, like a high mid major. So, like a Bonaventure type, but they don't shoot enough. Um, you're you're right there. You're like right there. <laughs> I figured A ten is what you meant. Yeah, um, it is. It is. Is it a, the U Matt? Is it Josh Cohen? No, no, that's a guard. Sense. It's a guard. Yeah, of course. Josh doesn't shoot threes. Um, I got stuck on the geography there. It's not Keyshawn Hall. No, a little further north. Yeah. Um, south of me, but north of Keyshawn Hall. It wouldn't be uh, Jimmy Clark. East of Jimmy Clark. <laughs> Sam, you're better. Off, I'm telling you, you're better off telling me. It's okay. We got time. Um, who would have a hundred and on a team that's totally stacked with great guards? Yeah. With a coach not, that I've expressed doubts about. Not Fordham. No, not Fordham. They don't shoot. <laughs> they don't shoot. Yeah, they're all coast to coast. Yeah. Um, South of Fordham. St. Joe's. Yes. Oh, of course, Eric Reynolds. Yes, it's Eric Obviously. Reynolds. Yeah, duh. And then the other one is a high major from Texas. From Texas. Um, that would have to be – I'm guessing a Big 12 guy, right? Uh, it's Big 12, yeah. It's not Texas A&M. Right, so – 
Wade Taylor is actually shooting the lowest, the second lowest percentage of anyone with 143 point attempts. Well, that explains a lot. Uh, let's but see. It's, but I, is it LJ Cryer? It is not. LJ Cryer is at 38.6%. It's not LJ Cryer. Maybe even more obvious than LJ Cryer. Wow. One of the big, like, one of the bigger names in the sport, thanks to something that you did a couple of years ago. Pop, uh, I guess, well, Max Acemas? Yes. Okay. There you go. Max Acemas and Eric Reynolds are the only two, are the only two guys that are also shooting 40% on that many attempts. Guys shooting 39.5%, Ethan Taylor from Air Force. Hmm. Ethan's Shout good. Out. I yeah, like him. He's really good. All right. The last thing that I want to discuss tonight before we get into um, some quick previews for tomorrow is a league that Jonathan and I kind of discussed a little bit last night, but we need to get deeper into it. The Big West. UC yeah. Davis um, got a big win. Um, they're, they are a really, really good basketball team right now. <laughs> um, after beating UC Irvine last night. Eli Pepper had 14. Ty Johnson had 19. They're 7-1 in the league. You've seen this team in person. Yeah. What is so impressive about what they do? Well, I mean, it's it's. We talked before we came on the air, and like Eli, Eli Pepper is just a, he's a freak, man. Like he he's built like a linebacker or a fullback, whatever you prefer, and he's, you know, he's only six four, two hundred, but he plays like he's six seven, six eight, because uh, he's just too big to. Um, and his, his shoulders are so wide and his elbows get out there. It's just like really hard to shut him down um, is what I, you know, what I realized watching him and with them being at the top of the league right now, you know, I was definitely tuned in yesterday for that Irvine win. That was a revenge game. They've already played Irvine twice. They lost an OT at Irvine. So that was a incredible pair of two games. Uh, they kept that thing in the fifties yesterday, which I thought was a, a good gym less strategy um, to keep that thing low scoring and, um, they're playing a top 75 defense. And, you know, I know a lot of these teams we've already talked about, I keep going back to defense, but defense wins games flat out. Um, so their offense isn't super efficient, but when they need buckets, they can go to pepper. And when uh, they need stops, they're getting stops. And I think you look at the entire, uh, the entirety of the big West, UC Davis right now uh, to, to my surprise and probably several other surprised uh, that they're playing the best defense in the league. That usually is a staple of UC Irvine basketball. It's only decimal points apart. Irvine's number two. Uh, and they are both far and away. Like if you look at the conference only defense ratings after whatever it's been, seven, eight games in the league, uh, they're like 10 percentage points above, uh, above third place, which is UC San Diego, the other incredible story in this league. Um, so you see Davis getting it done with defense. They're basically adopting the Irvine model. I think Irvine still has better players, but but the way D Davis is playing and a lot of old guys too. So so some of the people that were picking UC Davis in the top four this year, I just couldn't be believe it because they they had so many close calls over the last few years and just kept falling short over and over and over and losing close games. But that experience I think has helped them a lot this year because they're not getting rattled late in games. And there's been a few games like the game I saw them against Santa Barbara where they can really just knock a team out. Uh, mid mid game and they they blew Santa Barbara out the game I went to, which was also a surprise. So uh, with every one of these wins, Sam, confidence is brewing and building. And when shots aren't falling and you have a good defense, you can still win. And that's all that's all true for this UC Davis team so far. Yeah, and that's not too far from you, right? 
Yeah, it took me about an hour, almost two hours to get up there. It's just oh, wow. before just before Sacramento. Maybe yeah. ninety, maybe ninety you go, minutes you, on a good day. Do you would you go up around the bay or would you go across the bay? I'm on the East Bay now. I, I moved over to Oakland a couple of years ago, so I uh, I just go straight north. Oh and, wow! So it's two hours from Oakland. Yeah, but well, I, it's probably not quite two. I, on a good day, I could get there in ninety, but you always want to account for a little. It, for some reason, on the way to Sacramento, there's always this little spurt in Vacaville where there's traffic on a work day. Um, so going up, going up there for a 7 p.m. tip off, it's probably better for me to leave around two. Then I have a chance to get there by 3:30. But if, hey, I if left, you just if you just keep going past Sacramento on that highway, <laughs> you know where you end up. A lot of places, but what would you, know, you have in mind? The George Washington Bridge. Oh, there you go. There you you go. end up, you end up right across the bridge from the great city of New York. So, I recommend you do that at one point in your life. Just drive all the way across the country. Yeah, you know, I, I need to do that. I, I've done I've done a lot of it, but never all in one trip. So that is a bucket list for sure. Yeah. Um. Then let's go down from Sacramento. Let's let's go to La Jolla, California. Beautiful place. One of the great stories of college basketball is unfolding. Right now, um, where Eric Olin in year four in Division One has UC San Diego at um, the number one offense in the conference, six and one, with a win over Hawaii at home, led by Bryce Pope. Have you been able to watch much of this team? I've been watching their highlights each time. I haven't, you know, I've had a couple times where they were close with, I believe it was Santa Barbara, and I you know, was watching the waning minutes to see how that finished up and they got it done. That was a huge win for them, by the way, they won in the, uh, in the Thunderdome, which is a brutal place to play. Uh, so this UC San Diego team, I don't think a lot was expected of them. In fact, I think they were picked eighth and, you know, they're still in their fourth year of transition. So not eligible for the tournament. They will let them in the big West tournament. So um, they'll have that opportunity. However, you know, what this team's doing is, they, they protect the ball very well. Uh, you know, Bryce Pope is probably one of the best kept secrets out there. He's super, you know, super effective at protecting the basketball, getting to the foul line. Uh, he, they run a lot of their stuff through him. He's um, a highly efficient guy at 108 O rating for the amount of minutes he plays. So they're, they're getting a lot done uh, that way. And they're also, you know, they're not actually not playing the best defense, but they're, they're so effective offensively. And you look at the uh, Hawaii is a, a super defensive team, uh, but UC San Diego was able to uh, to counter that, uh, you know, playing a little bit more through Tate Jones, who's their 6'6", 200-pound wing. Uh, he had a nice night with 13 and, and 6, uh, and he actually played incredible defense, got a key block late, had three steals as well. Um, so it's it's been, a, it's been one of those, like, crazy Big West stories where, the Tritons are putting it all together at the right time. It's not like we saw this coming in non-conference. They had six losses. Uh, they went up to Washington and lost by 27. So there wasn't like this <coughs> expectation that they were going to do what they're doing. But, man, beating Long Beach, beating Santa Barbara, now beating Hawaii, those are three teams that we all thought would compete for the title, and they beat all three of them. And uh, They were in there with Irvine for a while before fading late and losing by 11 just uh, last Thursday. And it's not just like they're pulling these wins out. The metrics back it up. Yeah, big time. They are 118th in Ken Palm right now. 
Yep. To another big story in this league. We really we were high on UC Santa Barbara coming into the season, and everyone was. I mean, this is AJ Mitchell's back, and they got Johan Treor, and they got Josh Pierre Lewis and Cole Anderson. They bring in Schlotzberg, but it just hasn't worked out. They are four and four in the league. They lost yesterday to Cal State Fullerton at home. That's not a great loss. Fullerton's just two and five. What's wrong in Santa Barbara with Joe Pasternak's team? Well, I think they struggle quite a bit defensively. That was certainly the issue when I saw them play at Davis. Uh, Davis was just running all their stuff and running right by them. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of pick and roll, a lot of high-low. Uh, Davis was just generating so many open looks. Now, after after that rough stretch, that's when uh, Santa Barbara – that was the league opener, and Santa Barbara ultimately started 0-3, which was a big surprise. Of course, lost at Riverside by two, then lost that, that UC San Diego team we just discussed. They really started to get right, started playing better D, um, playing Cal Poly and playing Bakersfield helped. But that carried over into a really good win, uh, two really good wins over both Long Beach and Northridge uh, prior to yesterday's loss. Fullerton is the team in the Big West, since you guys don't discuss them a lot. They're the team that I don't think anybody should ever sleep on. They're extremely well coached. They exploit uh, all these different matchups against the top of the league. You know, almost every year, no matter how low they are, whether it's in Ken Palm or uh, any other rating system that of your choice, they – know how to match up in this league. They've given Santa Barbara fits for years. They beat them there last year too. And um, of course they were starting one and five this year. So they were ex- extremely desperate yesterday. Um, and then that was enough to get them the win. I, I do think Santa Barbara is going to be better as time goes on, as long as they stay healthy. The big answer to your question though, Sam, is besides Cole Anderson and, you know, Mitchell here and there, but he's so much, he's so, he, he brings so much attention from the defense that it really comes down to Cole Anderson knocking down outside shots. Outside of Cole Anderson, they really don't have that big of an outside uh, threat. And I've talked to other Big West coaches and even a couple coaches that face them in non-conference play, and they all said, like, just let them shoot because they don't hit it at a very high percentage unless it's Cole uh, or AJ if he somehow leave them wide open. So that's a big problem for the Scoutio roster is a you know very limited shooting threats. Yeah, and they they own that. They don't take a lot of threes. They're actually 16th right. in the country in three-point percentage. So they are a really good shooting team when they do shoot, and it's because mu- much of the much of that shooting is Cole Anderson. Nobody else has taken more than 38. Um, and Cole Anderson's shooting 44%. So on a night where Cole Anderson is off, they're yeah, in trouble. Off. Exactly. It, it, exactly. And so it's, and Cole's had his, uh, you know, even though he's played in every game, he's had some health battles as well, where he can only go 20, 25 minutes. So it, it, it hasn't been smooth sailing to say the least, but I do think that provides a window of hope as well. If you're a Gaucho fan. All right. Moving on. Talking about tomorrow night's games, uh, nine o'clock on CBS sports network. Is the is a battle of two teams on Long Island? That's going to be a really fun one because Hofstra is a very unique offensive team, and Stony Brook is a very unique defensive team. I'm not sure how much of either of these teams you've gotten to see. <laughs> it's okay; you can say you haven't seen them if you haven't. 
Yeah, well, I mean, here's the here's the fact, uh, Sam, is I track all 362 teams. So even if I've seen them or not, I'm very familiar with the data, how they're performing, how they're trending, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, and then, of we course, are, I tried to – Yeah, exactly. So it's just so, – some of these – so Stony Brook, I remember watching them earlier this year, and um, I was very impressed. It was actually that opener against St. John's. They started hot and then eventually faded. And I saw them a little bit in that Nebraska loss as well. Um, but I, I, I had the impression that they were going to be feisty in this league. You also have the Geno Ford situation there where, you know, I do believe there might be a little bit of a hot seat for him. Some people were actually surprised he was retained after last year that I've talked to. So, you know, it seems like the troops have rallied a little bit around that and they're an older team. Look at all the seniors they throw out there. So I, I think they're going to hang in most of league play as they have. I mean, their losses in league play have been in overtime just by three on Thursday to Delaware and a close six point loss to a good Charleston team. So, um, and they have a road win at Northeastern, not an easy place to go Matthews arena and get a win. So I, you know, I think you also have to, when you look at a Stony Brook Hofstra matchup at any time, obviously natural rivals out there on long Island. Um, I feel like they're going to get after each other. And I always like to look at what happened the year prior. Um, so you look at last year's Hofstra matchups and, the one game at Hofstra was embarrassing by 21. And when they came to Stony Brook, it was a really good game, tight game, even though Stony Brook season was pretty much over and they lost by three. Um, I feel like it's going to, since this is at Stony Brook, it's going to be a war. Yeah, it's going to be a war. Um, you've got a seven footer like Keaton Fitzsimmons and you get a six ten guy as active as Chris Mido. And then you have Andre Snotty, who's also super active. They're just, their hands are everywhere. They got, they, they, they are just very good at defending. And even if their numbers really haven't been great defensively this year, this is a strong defensive team. And I will ride that for a while, especially on the inside with how much they can affect shots with their length. Um, their guards are not great defenders. That's kind of the, the Achilles heel of that defense, why it's ranked 241. And that's kind of where Hofstra can exploit them because Hofstra does a really good job at creating mismatches. They get their littles on your bigs and their bigs on your littles a lot. But Stony Brook's bigs can guard littles, even even with how long they are. Mido is one of the best. Mido is one of the more underrated players in the country because um, his arms are so long and he's so mobile. But, I mean, we know how good Tyler Thomas is and, and D-Stone yeah. Dubar. We've talked. Um, we've talked a little bit about Hofstra on the show. Um, Hofstra's fun. They're really fun. They have a, but they've been a little disappointing, I think, in conference play. They're two and three. They lost to Northeastern and the Campbell. Campbell, Campbell losses not, is a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. They shouldn't be taking those losses. Um, moving on, Kansas and Cincinnati both need big time bounce backs tomorrow. In Lawrence, the Jayhawks yeah. probably will get it because, again, it's in Lawrence. Right. Cincinnati has been the number 12 offense in Big Ten in Big 12 play. Kansas has been the number 10 offense in Big 12 play. Sorry, defense in Big 12 play. But Kansas has been the number one offense in Big 12 play because they're shooting 61% inside the arc. They are just really good at feeding Hunter Dickinson. Yeah, absolutely. And I think – you get Kansas on a national TV game like this, big spotlight game. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't think Cincinnati's been a part of a game 
quite at this national level in a long time coming from the American conference. I think that could be really overwhelming for the Bearcats. And, uh, you know, I was impressed on how they performed at BYU, getting that road win, weathering the storm, taking BYU out of their offensive flow. Certainly, I think they'll, they'll come prepared with a good defensive game plan. But, they're, you know, I, I just think that the moment, the spotlight, the hunger that Kansas will bring will probably be too much. Uh, but we'll see. I, I like the Cincinnati team more than I think most do. Um, so I don't, I don't want to completely write them off going into a game, but this is a really tough spot for them. Yeah, another – um, fun one, closer to your neck of the woods, but not quite your neck of the woods. Um, in the big sky yes, between, Mon- between Montana and Weaver State. Weaver State, obviously. Uh, were you at the game against St. Mary's? I was not, but I uh, I had that thing on. I was at the game earlier that week when they when St. Mary's looked awesome and killed New Mexico. Um, but that 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 game against St. Mary's was incredible. Where Dylan Jones basically took the game over. Yeah, and and Dylan Jones is just simply one of the best players in college basketball. Um, he's a double-double machine, and they're going to go up against um, a Montana team that has been really good this year on the offensive side of the ball. Um, they're 3-2 and two only in the league, and this is actually the second time they face each other. And in the game at the D-Event Center, hosted by Weber State in Ogden, the Wildcats actually won that game by 30 and Money Williams did not play for uh, yeah. Montana, and he's still dealing with that injury. I'm not sure what the situation is, but he's a fun freshman. Um, how yeah. do you think Montana can kind of play around that um, against Weber State? Yeah, Money's one of the best freshmen in the uh, in the country, if you ask me, certainly at the mid-major level. But, uh, he, I mean, just the fact that it's so hard to crack a rotation as a freshman now in the high-major level, he's – he, he's uh, one of the guys to watch when he's healthy. Unfortunately, he hasn't made it back. But Montana, you know, has adjusted pretty well lately to life without him. You know, I do think Northern Colorado is a very good team, so not a huge shame in losing to them in overtime a couple weeks ago. And going and winning at their rival Montana State by 10 is a great springboard into this huge home matchup with Weber. And Weber themselves has looked pretty human. Um, obviously, Eastern is steamrolling everybody right now and, Again, I'm not going to blame Weaver too much for losing by two there. Uh, but going on the road when they lost at both Sac State and Portland State, those are two teams Weaver needs to be able to handle. To, to get beat on the road on both of those was really concerning. And now they got to go back on the road. Montana's a tougher place to win than either of those two. Um, I have a, I just have, a, I guess, a small lean to Montana. But you also look at the series history. The immediate history tells you these, get, these two schools actually – enrolled last year in the Roadwind exchange program where they each won on each other's home court. So that's another interesting dynamic. Montana's got to never heard it described that way. Yeah. And I think it's the right way to go. If you care about your resume, you should both enroll together as a tandem. Um, and I, you know, this, this Grizz team is uh, pretty inconsistent as you alluded to, but Weber has been lately too. So who knows, maybe we'll get another Roadwind exchange program. Usually the, um, the no, travel because um, Weaver won by thirty at home. Oh, you're right. right. Yeah, you're right. Thank you. So that won't happen this year. So Montana's got the revenge factor. Um, thanks for reminding me. And I do, but I do think um, <clears throat> another factor in this matchup is a lot of the teams that come from sea level and go up to either Weaver State or Montana have that extra challenge. It's probably the toughest uh, part of travel anywhere in the NCAA. Uh, however, when they play each other, 
they're kind of both used to that. So it negates one of the biggest factors. So it really is kind of just straight up basketball from there. Uh, anyway, with all that being said, I expect a great game and both teams really need it. The last game I want to talk about, um, we were talking with Jim Root on Friday and he said, we were, we were talking about McNeese. Is McNeese going to run the table in the, in the Southland? And he said, no, I think they lose at Corpus Christi. Nice. That game is happening tomorrow night. It's Corpus Christi. It's the number It's the number two team in that conference. And it's McNeese, the number one team in that conference. Shahada Wells, Christian Shoemate, Antavion Column, DJ Richards, CJ, like just unfair roster, unfair coach in that league against a Corpus Christi team that's um, maybe not what they were last year with Steve Lutz and with um, Terion Murdicks and Trey Tennyson and Isaac Mushilia, but they're still pretty good. They're they're four and one. Do you think they have a chance to take down Mighty McNeese? I'll put it to you this way. If anybody knocks off McNeese this year, it's probably going to have to happen in this game uh, because I do think Corpus Christi's performing like the second best team. They've got some impressive wins when they, it, it all started when they went to UTEP on November 29th, when UTEP was pretty hot and cooled them off with a really impressive road win. And then, you know, as Southland play has developed, they've been handling most of their business. A, uh, a three-point loss at New Orleans hurts a little, but a four-and-one start is awesome for a team under first-year head coach Jim Shaw. Uh, Jim's a, a good friend of mine, and I'm friends with a lot of the guys on the staff. Um, if I had a drink right now, I'd pour one out because I was actually supposed to be at this game tomorrow. Um, but I'll be there in spirit and certainly be, be watching this one. Um, now, like you said, McNeese is so dominant. They have the cleanest pass to the NCAA tournament in the country because they host the NC, the uh, Southland tournament in Lake Charles. Uh, and so this is the one night maybe a Southland team can actually beat them. Uh, and Jim Jim was bold and made the call. Uh, I, I guess I shouldn't predict that, but I do think I'm it's not sure. He, I, and I'll have to go back and watch the tape because he might have said <laughs> if it happens, it happens in this game. But I think he said that it might happen. Right. That's kind of what I'm saying. If, if it happens anywhere along the way, like I don't see them losing at Sela or at Nichols or at maybe at Lamar potentially. Um, but Corpus Christi has got the best shot because, you know, Corpus Christi is a team that is building a winning culture. They have, you know, a few decent talented players, nothing like McNeese, but they're playing the second best defense, Sam. So we keep talking about. Uh, is you know that defensive pedigree, so they're going to have a strategy to take guys like Shahada Wells out of the game, if however possible. If they're able to effectively do that, they're going to catch McNeese. Maybe tournament starts today. Is McNeese does McNeese have an at-large resume? Almost. They're actually fairly close. I would still have them slightly out. Uh, if they run the table, then of course they get to twenty-nine and two. Yeah, twenty. Well, you would have to give them another loss, otherwise they're thirty-one and two, thirty and two, thirty and two. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have to give them another loss today, and of course, any loss from here for them is going to be a quad four. So that that's going to hurt. Now, I do think if they are thirty and three, um, you got to let them in. Probably, I got to look at their bracket again because I think the regular season only gets them to twenty-seven, so they might end up. No, it's thirty-one. Oh no, because there's there's like a bunch of there's four non D ones. No, you're right. Yeah, yeah. If you take away the non D ones, 
committee won't look at those. But again, I, I think it's going to be difficult to leave them out. I think depending on, you know, so much of it comes down to resin. Like this sounds silly and I, I don't particularly like it, but these resume metrics that are on the team sheets, um, the strength, strength of resume and the KPI actually starts to matter quite a bit for a team like this because there's no other real way to compare them to teams with way more data, right? So they, of course, left non-conference with two quad 2A wins, both at VCU and at Michigan. And, you know, and so I those, think the VCU win will age really well comparably to the Michigan Yeah. Well, VCU is already – it's already stronger than Michigan today, 91 and 94. Mm, yeah. I, <laughs> which is I funny. Think, and and so think, the – the strength of resume right now is 44th. So if they can stay in that range, again, I think a loss though, that, that's the problem. Like if they lose, even in the championship game, it could go from 44 to 54 and then they're out. So, and again, it's, it's a committee full of ADs and presidents interpreting this information. So you might, you might see, you know, depending on how they're discussed, them thrown into the first four. It's it is possible. Belmont made the first four uh, in a similar scenario, and so did uh, Drake. Even though they're in much stronger leagues than the Southland. Yeah. Um, difficult difficult question to answer. And of course, if you're a McNeese fan, you just root for every bubble team to lose every single day. Uh, but that of course creates new bubble teams. And I'll digress from there. All right, Rocco. Thank you so much for coming on Brackets Bubbles and Bit Steelers tonight. We had a really great. We, we had a really great show. Um, we'll make sure to have you on again. If you came, fuck, I, I already forgot the outro that Jonathan did. All right, if you came to hear about Tyler Self's job, if you came to hear about traffic in Vacaville, California, if you came to hear about the latest happenings with Caleb Grill, you came to the right place. This has been Brax Bubbles and Bitch Steelers, and we will see you next time.